You are now listening to the July 7th broadcast of Unity in Christ. Today's topics are the history of the Biblio, the sex spiral, and grace upon grace. We will begin with the history of the Biblio. This program will examine how the Bible was recorded, inspect the archaeological evidence, as well as the different languages it has been translated into. everyone, I am Jisoo King, a new host to this program, The History of the Biblio. What kind of Bible do you have right now? I currently have an NASB version, an NIV, and an ESV English Bibles. A lot of you probably have a wide variety of Bibles as well. Like these various types of Bibles, different translations of Bibles help us to understand and study the Word. For example, If you cannot grasp the meaning of a word or sentence in an ESV Bible, you can try reading in a more modern translation of the Bible to compare and fully understand what the Bible is saying. When I was in youth groups at my church, my friend and I compared my NASB and my friend's King James Bible to better understand the meaning of the passages. And, at times, we would read both the versions together. Nowadays, we don't necessarily have to have multiple Bibles, but instead easily access the Bible through the internet. Moreover, we can access any type of Bible through our cell phones with just a few taps. For example, I am able to leave all of my physical Bibles at home while traveling, but still am able to read the Bible anywhere. And not only that, but also look at different translations. Living in such a convenient and accessible time period, It is hard for us to even imagine that there was a time when you would be persecuted for carrying a Bible or translating the Bible into different languages. Only 500 years ago, William Tyndale was burned at the stake for translating and publishing the New Testament. And before that, when authorities found out that people had a Bible in their home, they were forced to burn the Bible. If they refused, they would be burned at the stake along with the Bible. There were many punishments for carrying or translating the Bible. Reading and teaching from the Bible was also strongly prohibited. Restrictions and prohibitions surrounding the Bible have continued for centuries. The incredible and thankful fact is that no matter how difficult it was for believers, the Bible or the people reading and believing the Bible did not cease. In fact, it has continued to be published in various versions and translations and into many languages, so that the Bible can be read anywhere today. Many people that realize the importance of the living God risk their lives to distribute the word of life around the world. That is how the Bible was preserved and kept to this day, so that we can read it and carry it for ourselves. If God did not reveal himself to us, we would not be able to know him. God showed himself through the Bible, and he became known to us. The Bible was not a random creation that fell instantly from heaven, but is a result of God's creation of the universe and calling on Abraham to create a line of people to lead and serve him, as well as sending his one and only son to die for us and be resurrected. This amazing story of salvation and God's work has been recorded by his people and has spread for centuries, reaching us in contemporary times. All of God's work in the Old and New Testaments are events that extend back over 2,000 years. The writers of the Bible were very different people with different career paths at different times on this earth. Despite that, there were countless number of writers. The fact that the Bible tells a consistent story is proof that the Holy Spirit worked through those people. Aren't you curious about how the Bible was recorded, preserved, and translated to reach us over so many centuries? This new program, The History of the Biblio, hopes to discuss the documentation and the history of the writing and translation of the Bible. To examine how the Bible was recorded, inspect the archaeological evidence behind this, as well as the different languages it has been translated into. I hope through this program that we can all truly love and come to appreciate the Bible at a level it deserves. 
I hope to see you again next time. Goodbye.
Coming up next is a podcast series, The Sex Spiral, led by Pastor Dustin Daniels of Purity Ministry from Phoenix, Arizona. The program addresses sex with biblical grace and truth, without the shock value, and is a resource for anyone looking for biblical answers to pornography, singleness, marriage, family, and children. This program may contain mature language and subject matter. Welcome to God, Sex, and You, a daily discipleship podcast on healthy sexuality. Here's your host, Purity Pastor, Dustin Daniels. Today we are going to learn a few things from Moses and the Israelites in Numbers chapter 20 as we finish our lesson on blame. I mentioned how we blame God for things that happen in our, in our lives, right? Especially when it comes to habitual sin like pornography. We say things like, well, if God really loved me, he wouldn't let me be tempted. He would take all of these temptations and all of this sin from me. But since he doesn't, man, all of my problems are, are really his fault because he refuses to help me. Wow. Does that sound familiar? Kind of sounds like what happened with Adam and Eve and, and Satan in the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3, doesn't it? You know, we haven't come very far since the beginning of humanity, have we? Well, this podcast is part three of three, and it comes from a larger teaching series titled The Sex Spiral, Forgiven and Free from Pornography. The Sex Spiral is a set of awareness triggers that explain the location as to where you are in this habit, this bondage, this addiction, whatever you want to call it, to pornography. And make no doubt about it, pornography is its a series of predictable habits that we've created ourselves. The bad news is that we don't even realize it. We, we don't understand what's going on. The good news, though, is as you listen to these podcasts, as you review and you start applying this material to your own lives, you, by the grace of Almighty God, you will break free from the bondage of pornography. In today's podcast, we're going to discuss three things. Number one, how blame is the precursor to anger. Number two, how blame affected Moses and turned him passive aggressive towards the Israelites. And number three, we're going to talk about an interesting insight as to why Moses was not able to lead the Israelites into the promised land. So let's get started with today's lesson. It's titled Blaming God. Turn to Numbers chapter 20, verse 2. There was no water for the people to drink at that place, so they rebelled against Moses and Aaron. The people blamed Moses and they said, if only we had died in the Lord's presence with our brothers. Why have you brought the congregation of the Lord's people into the wilderness to die along with our livestock? Why did you make us leave Egypt and bring us here to this terrible place? This land has no grain. It's no figs. It doesn't have any grapes. It doesn't have any pomegranates. And it has no water to drink. My oh my. How quickly we forget why they were even in Egypt. Verse 7, And the Lord said to Moses, You and Aaron must take the staff and assemble the entire community. As the people watch, I want you to speak to the rock over there, and it's going to pour out its water. You will provide enough water from the rock to satisfy the whole community and their livestock. Verse 9, So Moses did as he was told. He took the staff from the place where it was kept before the Lord. And then he and Aaron summoned the people to come and gather at the rock. And he says, listen, you rebels, he shouted, must we bring you water from this rock? Moses raised his hand and he struck the rock twice with the staff and water gushed out. So the entire community and their livestock drank their fill. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not trust me enough to demonstrate my holiness to the people of Israel, you're not going to lead them into the land that I'm giving them. So Moses, he dealt with anger his whole life. 
He killed an Egyptian. He broke the first set of the Ten Commandments. And now he's angry at the Israelites. And it's important to understand here, this is the passage to where God says, you're not actually going to go into the land. He's got, think about this. Moses, the greatest prophet, Jesus says that John the Baptist was the greatest prophet that ever lived. I don't want to have to disagree with Jesus. I think that Moses was, personally. Um, I think, theologically, I think that Jesus said that because he ushered in the Savior, right? But when you look at what Moses did versus what John the Baptist did, Moses had to work with millions of people who completely rebelled against God time and time again. He called them stiff-necked, meaning I've got my head up. I'm not going to do what you say. The point in showing you guys this passage is you're, he's getting blamed for a lot of things. And he doesn't know what to, how to deal with his anger. So the Lord says, I want you to speak to the rock. And what's he do? He strikes it twice. Right? Because he's angry. He's not thinking. He wants to take out his anger. Before, that's how he, he brought water before, I believe, was the same way he struck a rock. Notice God doesn't do things the, the same way most of the time. But I would say that this one act of disobedience is, is what um, cost him not being able to get in there. But why? You think, well, that, is that really that big of a deal? I mean, all he did was strike the rock instead of speak to it. And what the Lord says is, you didn't show people my holiness. Out of anger, listen guys, out of anger, you performed a miracle. You used my power out of your anger to bring something good. I wanted to show my holiness. Imagine the power of going, of speaking to the rock instead of actually hitting the rock and something coming. Isn't that a lot more powerful? To speak to something? The Lord spoke the world into existence, right? He wanted to show the, the power that it was God doing all this stuff. So Moses being blamed, just like in our world now, if we're getting blamed or if we're blaming other people, that's just going to cause more problems, it's going to continue us in other cycles. It's going to make us angry with other people. That's what happened to him. And we're not going to think straight. We're going to do stupid stuff. And we're going to continue to um, sin in other ways. So the Israelites blamed Moses goes to the Lord. And he, and he tries to do as the Lord. But he turns passive aggressive in his anger. And then he does what the Lord says. So when it comes to blame... It's really easy for us to not sin just sexually. We start involving other people with our sin, as we all know, right? That we do it completely wrong, and still God loves us so much that He's going to provide. He's the provider. It's, the, it's God's provisions in all of that. Even in our own sin, on our worst day, God provides all right, so the question tonight, fellas, is how are you currently blaming God and others? How are you actually doing this? Let's think about it. Take your, look at the, if you have to, look at the, the spiral itself and just think of if you've sinned and acted out recently, think about what that is a timeline of sin and who you've blamed and why you've blamed and is it yourself versus other people? And once again, that's a very good awareness tool for you guys to take away tonight. So let me ask you the same question. How are you blaming God right now? It, it doesn't even have to deal with the topic of, of sexual sin. I mean, man, this is, this is just life. Maybe we end up not getting that raise or that promotion that, at work that we wanted, and we start to blame God. Maybe we're dealing with our children's temper tantrums, 
and we blame God. Maybe our, our spouse doesn't seem to have any time for me, and I blame God. Here's the subtle evil reality in all of this. Most of the time, we would never, man, we would never admit that we're blaming God, would we? Man, there's just no way. Oh, the ignorance and the arrogance of me blaming God. I mean, who would do such a, an outlandish thing, right? Huh. But you know what? You know what's even more evil? Is not admitting that we think about this. If we don't bring ourselves to confessing our sin, our thoughts, our unhealthy thoughts, we can't repent of our sin. And if we're not going to repent of our sin, we're unable to change in our ways. So if you find yourself living life more and more frustrated because you feel like life, aka God, has given you a raw deal, man, I would encourage you to confess your sin right now. He's got big shoulders. First John 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful. See, God is faithful. We're faithless. If we confess our sins to Him, He is faithful, and He is just. He is going to forgive us. He's going to forgive our sins, and He's going to cleanse us. He's going to wash us from all unrighteousness. James 5.16 reads, Confess your sins to one another. And pray for one another. Well, why do I want to do that? So that you may be healed. When we confess our blame, when we confess our sin, when we confess our unhealthy thought life, when we confess that to God and we confess it to a trusted friend, you are going to be amazed of the spiritual and the emotional weight that's going to be lifted off your shoulders. I promise you. Another way to live life lightly and freely is to install a porn blocker and filter on all of your digital devices. There is so much freedom knowing that my wife, Amy, can look through my computer, my phone, it doesn't matter, my wallet, bank account, email accounts, at any time. She's not going to find any pornography. She's not going to find anything that's going to discredit her or me or embarrass the Lord. And if you don't have a current filtering software system on your digital devices, let me just recommend to you Covenant Eyes filtering software. Thank you so much for listening to God, Sex, and You. I'm Dustin Daniels. And if you're in Phoenix or somewhere close, I want to invite you to our weekly Grace Group. It's a community group. Everybody is welcome. And uh, you are invited to listen to God with us every Tuesday night, 7 p.m. at Northern Hills Community Church. We're in Building A, Room 301. You can follow me on Twitter at Purity Pastor and email me your questions at DustinDanielsRadio.com. Man, I would love to hear from you. 1 Corinthians 4.20 reads, The kingdom of God isn't just a lot of talk. It's living in God's power. And that's my prayer for you is to live in God's power today. That power is from the Holy Spirit. It's in the very name and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. I love you and I look forward to our time again.
I first believed My chains are gone I've been set free My God, my Savior Has ransomed me And like a flood His mercy reigns Unending love Amazing grace The Lord has promised This is for those of you that would like to raise your children instilling God's values and His words into their lives. Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries can send you CDs of our children's program. The program includes Let's Read the Bible, Praise Time, Pray Time, and Story Time. If any of you are interested in the program, please contact the office or email us to receive the CD. I hope that this program can spread out through our English-speaking children. Our office number is 602-866-8999 and email address is heartandsoul.org at gmail.com Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor David Platt of Radical. Today's topic is Why Reformers Died in Their Day and How We Must Live in Ours. Part 1, based on Psalms, Chapter 51. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor David. If you have your Bible, I hope you do, I invite you to open with me to Psalm chapter 51. And while you're turning there, 
Let me just say how honored, humbled, overwhelmed I am just to be at this conference. As Mark mentioned, I was here 10 years ago. I had just become a pastor for the first time. And I sat over there in the Galt House Hotel listening to Mark Dever preach from 1 Corinthians chapter 4 on the weight of pastoral ministry. And I felt it. And I listened to John MacArthur talk about 40 years of gospel ministry. And I thought, it's 14 years longer than I've been alive. And I listened to John Piper preach a sermon on exposition. And I thought, I'm not even sure if I've ever actually preached a biblical sermon. How am I going to pastor? So, needless to say, I never could have imagined the friendship that you brothers would invite me into. And I am deeply grateful and totally undeserving of your invitation. My topic is martyrdom and mission. Why reformers died in their day. How we must live in ours. The year was 1555. It was nearly 40 years after Luther had nailed 95 theses on the church door at Wittenberg. Nearly 20 years after Calvin had written his first edition of the Institutes in Latin. The church in England was under fire, literally, from a royal foe named Queen Mary, whom we've heard about. 1555. Over the next four years, 288 people would be burned at the stake for their Protestant faith. Men and women, church leaders and common laborers, even children. The first, J.C. Ryle wrote, to break the ice and cross the river as a martyr in Mary's reign was John Rogers. Rogers received his education at Cambridge, became a Catholic priest, quickly became disillusioned with the teachings of the Catholic Church. And in God's providence, he found himself in Holland, where he just so happened to meet a man by the name of William Tyndale. Tyndale taught Rogers the Bible and the gospel, and Rogers would never be the same. When Tyndale was arrested months after they met, he left his Old Testament manuscripts with Rogers, who in the days to come would compile them into a complete English Bible under the codename Thomas Matthew. The Matthew's Bible would become the first officially authorized version of the Bible in the English language. Rogers went on to pastor in Germany, but his heart was for the people of England. So he returned to London in 1548 with his wife, Ariana, and their eight children at the time. There he preached, pastored safely under the reign of King Edward VI until the day when Edward died, and soon thereafter, Edward's half-sister, Mary, proclaimed herself queen. Rogers knew where Mary stood on religion, steadfast with the church at Rome, against all Protestant teachings, and she arrived in London on Thursday, August 3rd, 1553. Rogers was appointed to preach the following Sunday. This was his moment, and he boldly proclaimed the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for God's glory alone, and warned the church against pestilent popery and all idolatry. Commenting on Roger's sermon that day, one biographer said, there was never any position in the whole history of the Reformation, all things considered, where the responsibilities thrown upon one single man were greater and the results more important. The same historian went on to say of Rogers, his conduct that day was more than noble. It was magnificent. Rogers' sermon that day would be his last. A week later, he was placed under house arrest with his wife and now 10 children with another on the way. Six months later, he was put into prison where he would live in cruel conditions for the next year, which led to January 1555, where he was summarily examined on three occasions and subsequently condemned for two offenses. One, standing against the church at Rome, and two, saying that in the sacrament of the altar, there is not substantially nor really the natural body and blood of Christ. Rogers hadn't been able to communicate with his wife, his family, the entire time he had been in prison. He'd not even met his youngest child. So he pleaded for an opportunity to see them. 
or at least speak to his wife before he died. His request was refused, and the next morning he was roused from his cell. He was led outside into the streets of the parish he once pastored. He walked in the shadow of the church where he had preached. Thousands of spectators lined the way, and in that sea of faces, he saw his family, his wife, holding a baby. First time he'd ever seen his youngest child. Ten other children standing beside, looking at their daddy. One writer said their anxious faces were all fixed on him and their voices of pain reached his ears. Another remarked, it's difficult even to imagine anything more tender and affecting than this parting scene, this last adieu to a beloved wife and so numerous an offspring, all in tears. He stood the shock with the feelings of a father and husband, but with the unshaken confidence of a Christian marching to his death. John Fox, in his book of martyrs, tells us that he walked calmly to the stake, saying over and over again the 51st Psalm. When he arrived, the sheriff gave him one last opportunity to recant, revoke his confession of faith, to which Rogers responded, that which I have preached, I will seal with my blood. Within moments, the fire at Rogers' feet was set ablaze. His body slowly began to burn, and as he lifted his arms high in the air, Ryle said the enthusiasm of the crowds knew no bounds. They rent the air with thunders of applause. For up to that day, Ryle said, men could not tell how English reformers would behave in the face of death, and they could hardly believe that some would actually give their bodies to be burned for their religion. And some it would be. Within days, others would face the same. Nicholas Ridley, who Matt mentioned earlier, was a fellow prisoner with Rogers. He wrote to other pastors who had been in prison saying, I thank our Lord God and Heavenly Father by Christ that since I heard of our dear brother Rogers departing and stout confession of Christ and his truth even to the death, since that time, I say, I have no longer felt any lumpish heaviness in my heart. John Leaf, a 19-year-old apprentice of John Rogers, was arrested, asked if he believed what Rogers had taught him. Leaf answered, not only did he believe every doctrine Rogers had taught him from God's word, but he was ready to meet the same death that Rogers had faced, and so he did. History said, burned alive with a cheerfulness and an unshaken resolution were remarkable for one so young and that would have pleased his teacher in the faith. John Rogers, Nicholas Ridley, John Leaf, I could read 285 other names who would follow in the fire of their footsteps across England under the reign of Queen Mary, in addition to all the saints who did the same across other countries during the Reformation. So see it, brothers. As this conference closes, lift your eyes across this Colosseum and look back one more time across history. See this day, 500 years ago, when our brothers in the faith were emboldened to die for their belief. See the day when pastors explored theology not as a merely academic exercise, but as a life and death endeavor. See this day when wives and children saw in their husbands and dads a willingness to sacrifice and suffer for the sake of what they studied. See in this day men who gladly embraced martyrdom for the sake of mission. See them, and as this conference closes, let us be reminded by them that it is altogether right for us in this room to give our lives preserving this gospel in the church. And brothers, be reminded by them that it is ultimately required for us in this room to give our lives proclaiming this gospel in the world. So my questions in this talk are twofold. Two questions I've been asking in preparation for this message. My first question is, why did they die? What was the reason why these reformers died? What was the root motive behind Reformation martyrs? And then my second question flowing from the first is how should we live? 
How should we live? Is there anything we need to hear across the halls of history from these heroes of our faith? Should we die for the same things for which they died? What might these martyrs say to us, particularly in a day in which the church has been so complicit in the promotion of cultural Christianity? Our day in which the church has become so complacent through priority on material comfort. Let us be honest, brothers, pastors. A theology of martyrdom is not a prominent feature in contemporary Western Christian thought. A theology of danger that leads to death is not a primary topic of conversation in our churches. Now sure, we possess rightful disdain for theologies that prioritize prosperity in this world. Yet I fear that such theologies have invaded our homes and our churches far more than we would like to admit. Surely we must confess that our views of safety and security in this room and in our churches are often far more American than they are biblical, far more concerned in the preservation of our lives in this country than they are with the exaltation of our Lord among the nations. And so for this reason, I submit we have much to learn from the Reformation regarding how to live based on why they died. So let's take the two questions in order. First, why did they die? And as I've asked this question, I've come to an answer I didn't expect. More specifically, I've come to a text I didn't expect. Not sure if you noticed, but John Fox, he was recounting John Rogers' death. He remarked that his Rogers walked to his death. He kept repeating the 51st Psalm. So as he walked past his wife and children, in addition to the throngs of people he loved and once led, these were the words that were on his lips. And as I read about Rogers' repetition of Psalm 51, I think, why this psalm? And then I read about Roland Taylor, the third martyr under Mary's reign, a pastor betrayed by two of his parishioners, thrown into prison. The night before he was put to death, he was allowed to have dinner with his wife and son. He gave his son a Latin book that contained notable sayings from old martyrs. In the back of the book, he wrote these words, I say to my wife and my children, the Lord gave you unto me, the Lord has taken me from you, and you from me, blessed be the name of the Lord. God careth for sparrows and for the hairs of our heads. I have ever found him more faithful and favorable than is any father or husband. Trust ye therefore in him by the means of our dear Savior Christ's merits. Believe, love, fear, and obey him. Count me not dead, for I shall certainly live and never die. I go before and you shall follow after to our long home. The next morning he was led to the place where he would burn. Fox says that when he had prayed, he went to the stake, he kissed it. He set himself into a pitch barrel, which they had put for him to stand in. He stood with his back upright against the stake, his hands folded together, his eyes toward that heaven. And from there, he began to quote scripture in English, the language of the people. And as he did, he was struck on the face and told to only speak scripture in Latin. Taylor didn't stop his English, though. And you'll never guess what scripture he was quoting for all the people to hear. Psalm 51. So I read about John Rogers, Roland Taylor. Then I read another historian who said that Psalm 51 was traditionally recited by English reformers at their executions. And I thought, why Psalm 51? This is not a text I think of when I think of martyrdom. It's a glorious psalm, to be sure. It's one of the most well-known, beloved psalms in all the Bible. Spurgeon commented on the challenge of preaching it, saying such a psalm may be wept over, absorbed into the soul, exhaled again in devotion, but commented on, where is he who, having attempted it, can do other than blush at his defeat? I'm set up. Poor defeat. There's so much here, but that's just it. What is it that's here that made this psalm so precious to Reformation martyrs in their final moments? I invite you to think about this with me. Let's read this psalm that I'm confident you've heard before. But let me invite you right now to hear it differently. Hear these words spoken from the mouths of men who are walking past their wives and children to their death. Hear these words shouted from the mouths of martyrs whose bodies are being set ablaze as they cry, Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, 
According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, flames are coming up. I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you've broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. So what truths does this psalm contain that compelled martyrs to their deaths and comforted martyrs in their deaths? As I've tried to answer that question, at least three truths have come to the surface from this text. Three truths that these men who were martyred believed. Three truths that drove them as they died. Number one, they believed their depravity was deserving of damnation. See how the psalm describes sin in different ways over and over and over again. Verse one, blot out my transgressions. Verse two, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Verse three, I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Verse four, against you, you only have I sinned. I've done what is evil in your sight. Verse five, I was brought forth in iniquity. In sin did my mother conceive me. Verse nine, hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Sin, iniquity, transgression, evil. Different words that combine together to show the depth of David's depravity. Now we know this psalm was written in response to his adultery with Bathsheba and murder of Uriah, but David knows sin is not an isolated incident for him. As Philip Jensen noted the first day of this conference, sin was not just an isolated incident for David. It utterly inundated him. John Piper pointed out last night, it bound him. Behold, verse 5 says, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Obviously, not a reference to an immoral relationship David's mother had or the specific circumstances surrounding his birth, but a reference to the reality that affects every single one of us in this room from the moment we are born into this world, born into sin, in that sense, dominated by depravity, destined to defy God. Verse 4, against you, you only, have I sinned. This psalm, a reminder that while our sin undoubtedly affects the people around us, the worst consequence of sin is the reality that you and I have defied the infinitely holy God of the universe. And as a result, we deserve death. In the words of David, my bones are crushed, my joy is gone, I'm guilty of shedding blood. Psalm reminds us of the infinite seriousness of sin before a holy God. In defying God, we have destroyed ourselves. It's the story of all scriptures. The BD reference to Genesis 3. One sin. They ate a piece of fruit. One sin. And from that one sin, death and condemnation came to all men. From one sin came all the effects of sin across history, around the world. Natural evil, hurricanes, tornadoes, tsunamis, moral evil, world wars, ethnic genocide, murder, rape, 
the kidnapping of eight-year-old girls in Nigeria. They're training to be suicide bombers. All of that goes back to one sin. And we in this room have committed millions of them. See, the severity of sin, all of Scripture, the depravity, the depth of depravity in all of our hearts, the reformers did. Isn't it interesting, even somewhat striking, to hear these men in what history would call their most climactic moment as Christian heroes. They're dying for their faith as they stand for the truth. Yet we don't hear these men in any way nodding to the nobility of their actions. Instead, in quoting Psalm 51, they're drawing attention to the depth of their transgressions. Even as they die for Christ, they believe, they know that they are sinners to the core. And this is a significant historical note. For even as John Piper shared on the panel the other night, I am, we should be under no illusion that these men were perfectly worthy of our emulation or imitation, much like the author of this psalm, the tragic hero of the Old Testament, as wonderful as these men were, they were also weak and wicked. And when standing before a holy sovereign, they were no less sinners than anyone else, including the adversaries who arrested them, the cardinals who condemned them, even the very queen who enjoined their execution. They were all guilty before God. And they knew that death was ultimately their due. And on top of that, they knew that the fires they would endure were nowhere near what they actually deserved. Your perspective of earthly embers changes when you've been saved from an eternal inferno. It's certainly true for John Rogers. We have very little from what he wrote in his prison cell, but one of Rogers' sons, when given access to his father's room after he died, found hidden away writings that contained his final reflections. And in them, among other things, John Rogers wrote shortly before his death, we, of and of ourselves, are polluted with many filthy sins, which if the measureless, unspeakable mercy and love of God in Christ did not put away by not imputing them to us, would have brought us to everlasting damnation and death perpetual. John Rogers, other Reformation martyrs, knew their depravity was deserving of damnation, a reality that set the stage for the second truth so clearly communicated in Psalm 51. Number two, they believed their salvation was found solely in God's mercy, separate from their merit. They believed their salvation was found solely in God's mercy, separate from their merit. So just as this psalm uses a myriad of words to describe man's sin, the same psalm uses a mosaic of terms to describe God's grace. Verse 1, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Mercy, abundant mercy, steadfast love. Think about what David is asking God to do. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from all my sin. He's asking God to unsin him, to remove all iniquity from him. Talk about a bold request. Ask the holy God whom you have defied to act as if you have not defied him. And here's the deal David knows there's no basis in himself for this. He's committed two sins for which the law of Moses provided no forgiveness, adultery and murder. The penalty for both of these sins, according to God's law, was death. David has nothing in himself to which he can appeal. So what does he do? He cries out for God to do what only God can do. Here is request. Verse 2, wash me, cleanse me. Verse 7, purge me, wash me. Verse 9, hide your face from my sins, blot out all my iniquities. Verse 10, Create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. Verse 12, restore to me, uphold me. Verse 14, deliver me. Verse 15, O Lord, open my lips. You see it? He's asking God to do all these things because he knows he can't make these things happen. He even says it in verse 15. He says, I give you a sacrifice if I could, but I can't. There's nothing I can do. Oh God, only you can do these things. Only you can save me. This reverted all week long. This was the cry of the reformers in their day. Salvation is found solely in God's mercy, separate from our merit. We've heard it over and over and over again. But do we realize how precious this really is? 
This concludes today's series of Unity in Christ. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.